Hello everybody and welcome to this episode of the Activist Lawyer Podcast. Today I will be joined by Ingus Kelly. Now Ingus was a guest on the podcast way back when, I think episode 28, so um, uh, not too long ago, but he came to join us to speak about his role in the Irish Rule of Law International. Um, now he, he comes to us um, from his very busy role. He is based in Kiev at the moment in Ukraine and he's working with the European Union Advisory Mission. So really interesting work there. He takes us through that before he heads off to do um, very important work with them. And I really hope you enjoy this episode. And we're really grateful to Angus for joining us again on the podcast. It's great to check in with him and see what he's doing. Uh, so hope you like today's episode. Thank you for listening. I am very, very excited to be joined in the studio by a former guest, Angus Kelly. Hi, Angus. How's it going? How are you, Sarah? I am good. Welcome back to our thanks, studio. Thanks very much for having me back. Yeah, it's great. Now, you're in a, joining us today in a different capacity, so we're going to speak about your current role. And my goodness, <laughs> as I said at the start, I don't know I don't know where, where to start with you because you've so much going on. Um, so just to tell everybody, you finished your sabbatical um, from your former role. You're on sabbatical um, um, from your former role as executive director with the Irish Rule of Law International, which we spoke about previously. And you are staying in Ukraine, where you're working now uh, for the EU advisory mission, UAM, am I saying that correctly? Correct, or, yeah. yeah. Um, and you're assisting Ukrainian authorities in their efforts to investigate and prosecute war crimes. You're the senior advisor on prosecution, if I, yeah, and other atrocities taking place following the Russian invasion last year. So a, like more than a year into, well, into a year and a half, aren't we? Or Well, the, the, the full-scale invasion is, is, is nearly is a year and a half. Yeah, yeah, it is exactly next month. It's a year and a half. But I've only been there since the start of, uh, end of September, start of October. Mm-hmm. So about, whatever, eight or nine months. Now. But UAM was in existence long yes, before yeah, this invasion. So tell us a little bit just about the organisation yeah. itself, maybe. Yeah. So, so the European Union Advisory Mission in Ukraine, uh, EUAM, is was set up in 2014 after the Maidan Revolution, which a lot of people would know about. Um, it's, there's a quite a good film on it on Netflix. Um, oh, yes. And you know, this was when they, they took over that central square in the centre of Kiev, the uh, Maidan. Um, and it was kind of uh, an outpouring of of angst about about the direction of the country and following on from that um, and the new government, the installation of a new government after the, the departure of the previous president and um, the EU was uh, in, in discussions with uh, the Ukrainian government and uh, the European Union advisory mission was set up uh, by the Council of the European Union, so by, by the member states to assist Ukraine in the area of security sector reform, which is obviously a key aspect of any of any country's um, structures and and way forward. Um, so, EUAM is <coughs> excuse me is a uh, is one of the uh, common security and defence policy missions. So that's part of the European Union's. I'm getting very technical here, mm-hmm. but it is important to be is, yeah. to be upfront about it. Is part of the uh, European Union's toolbox is the term they use a lot in Brussels. I find it a funny term myself, but there you go. Um, it's one of the foreign policy initiatives of of the European Union. So I previously myself previously worked in uh, in the CSDP mission to Kosovo and also to Libya. So there's a number of those, uh, both military and civilian, um, scattered around Africa, the Middle East, and Eastern Europe. Um, so the Ukrainian mission was set up uh, looking at security sector reforms, so policing, judiciary, uh, prosecution, 
legal in general, etc., 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 looking to to assist our Ukrainian colleagues in the, the reform process to improve their security sector. Um, and then in after the full-scale invasion in February of last year, uh, the decision was made by the Council of the European Union to extend the mandate, mm-hmm. so in April of last year. And one of the areas, uh, you know, a key area for that extension was to assist our Ukrainian colleagues in the investigation and prosecution of international crimes, so what we would commonly call war crimes or atrocity crimes. Yeah. Um, so that's where we come in. So yes, as you mentioned, I'm one of the, the senior advisors on the prosecution of international crimes. Um, and I have colleagues working in other areas of the of the judiciary and w- assisting our, our Ukrainian colleagues in the judiciary and prosecution, legal areas, mm-hmm. rule of law, uh, more broadly, uh, policing, etc., etc., etc. So it's made up of international experts as well as Ukrainian experts as well? Correct. So we have Ukrainian colleagues and then we have uh, colleagues from across the member states um, so the 27 EU member states, you have people working from across, from all those member states, and, and Norway as well, actually, we've had some new colleagues, because okay. other countries can opt in, and you know that was the case yeah. in Kosovo previously, there's, there's relationships between the European Union and some of the aligned states, if you will, are, you know, have common mm-hmm. concerns and, and expertise. Mm-hmm. So you are, you're based in Kiev at the moment. Yeah, I live in Kiev. Yeah, yeah, yeah I live in Kiev. Now, tell us more. How's that going? It's great. Uh, you know, it's a great place. My Ukrainian colleagues are amazingly capable, able people. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a very difficult task in front of them across a whole area. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very nice city, I have to say, uh, particularly this time of year. In the freezing winter in January and, and December and January, it can be, um, I wouldn't say challenging, but it's mm-hmm. it's cold and it's dark and it's... it's, it's uh, it's not the most hospitable place in the morning. In the morning, in the in the world, because you're in the steppes and you have the big Dnipro River going through the center of the city, and you have the wind gusting down, and the river freezes over. Although unfortunately, it hasn't been freezing over as it should have been. And we're back to the issue of kind of the climate emergency, et cetera, et cetera. Um, a more uh, to follow on this issue, I'd say. But um, but this time of year, from from when spring breaks and spring is, spring is late for them compared to us, I suppose. Yeah. Um, in April, it starts to brighten up and you get a lot of, they have amazing chestnut trees. When the symbol of Kiev is a chestnut tree and they have this beautiful right. chestnut, uh, tubular, almost candle-like flowers that we're all familiar with because we have the same chestnut trees here, the horse chestnut tree. Yeah. And that's the symbol of Kiev, as I mentioned, and it's beautiful green city with amazing parks. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you know that can sound a little bit trite in that it sounds all very idyllic, et cetera, et cetera, but obviously there's a war going yeah. on, you know? There's a curfew, so you have to be off the streets by midnight or you get arrested. There's air raid sirens every day. Um, you know, there's roadblocks on the way in and out of the city. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, um, security restrictions very regularly. If you travel, as I and my colleagues do, to assist our Ukrainian colleagues in other parts of the country, in Lviv, in Odessa, in Mykolaiv, in Dnipro, in Kharkiv, um, you know, in Kropovnitsky, um, you come across, you go through a lot of roadblocks, you have a lot of security settings, you have to, you know, we have lots of uh, understandably important security matters we attend to before we go anywhere with mm-hmm. our security colleagues in, internally. Um, so, look, it's not a normal situation, no. but people are very, and you know, I'd say sitting in Uri, no more than I was in Belfast yesterday and this morning, and uh, remember the taxi driver, we were on our way into Law Society House. Um, and peop, uh, the taxi driver said to me, what's it like living in Kiev? And I said, well, you know, life goes on. And I said, no better people to understand this than the people in, in Northern Ireland. Mm. Because during the troubles, during the conflict uh, in the north, there was, um, life went on. Yeah, Life went on, life goes on. Because people are adaptable mm. and they have to get on with their lives. So mm-hmm. it's certainly not easy. And, uh, you know, I think for me as as 
not uninterested, but I'm not, uh, it's not my country being blown up. It's not yeah. my country being invaded. It's not my friends and family at the front line. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot easier for me. If if this was, God forbid, but if this was Ireland being invaded by Russia or any other country mm-hmm. and my friends and family were at the front line getting shot and, you know, my country was being eaten up and the future of my country was in doubt and the, my own essence and nationality was being denied, yeah. that's a very taxing thing to have in your mind on a daily Absolutely. basis. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned there you previously, and we spoke about this in our last podcast as well, your previous um, experience working in, was in Bosnia and Cambodia as well. Mm. Obviously, your experience in um, prosecution of war crimes before, um, you know, dating back a number of years ago has, I, I'm presuming it's led you into to this position and this is what you're focusing on at the moment. Yes. Can we delve a little deeper into your actual role and, yeah. you know, just to describe to people what, what it's like to work? Um, there, I mean, it's probably fast moving, I'd imagine. Well, in some ways it's fast, in some ways it's slow, like, you know, because, you know, let's not, uh, there's difficult political considerations and, you know, it's, it's, you know, the first and most important thing to state in many ways on the work is this is Ukraine and it's, we're working to assist our Ukrainian colleagues, they're leading, we're trying to do the best we can to help them, but they're in charge, it's their country. It's their law. We're giving hopefully some assistance and international perspective. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we're looking at this in the perspective through the Ukrainian uh, legislation, the Ukrainian criminal code, the Ukrainian criminal procedure code. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a, co- a question that comes up a lot in our interactions with our colleagues from around Ukraine. Is this, uh, you know, the international uh, standards, et cetera, et cetera. But the Ukrainian standards, as outlined in the criminal procedure code and in uh, the criminal code, are are perfectly acceptable and up to scratch and up to standard. So that's not the issue. It's right. not trying to reform those yeah. pieces of legislation. Although like every piece of legislation in any country, there's always possibilities to improve. But if things are done according to the standards of the, of the Ukrainian system, that is more than sufficient sure. um, for what needs to be done. And the reality, of course, is that um, you know the vast majority of the 94,000 criminal acts that have been, uh, that have been registered to date and mm-hmm. counting will be considered and investigated internally in Ukraine. That's the reality mm-hmm. of the situation, as it is in nearly every other conflict, post-conflict zone in the world. As opposed to a tribunal, like outside. Yeah, yeah. well, that will that, that will know, happen eventually. Hopefully that yeah. will happen, yeah. yeah. And, okay. you know, the International Criminal Court is working very, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not involved with them, but they're mm-hmm. working, they have, they have staff sure. on the ground there. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's ongoing as well. Yeah, so I mean, we only need to watch the news. I mean, everybody's aware of the widespread, um, you know, atrocious crimes that have been committed and what we've witnessed. And I spoke before we came, we recorded here about our clients and you know, getting first-hand accounts from our clients who who came to Ireland and the UK um, to flee the war. I mean, just harrowing, harrowing stories from women and children. You know, but in terms of stats and figures, I'm not sure how much you can, information you can go into. Where are you and your colleagues at in terms of, you know, providing assistance to to victims and looking at the, the amount of atrocities? What Where are we at with that that maybe we're not seeing? It's a big task. Mm. And, you know, at the certainty of repeating myself, it's, it's our Ukrainian colleagues that are leading on this and we're trying to assist them. And we do do that through a number of methodologies, uh, through... Uh, getting technical expertise in Mm. certain areas by providing information and knowledge on what's been done in other places and how it's uh, dealing with, you know, assisting victims or survivors, how that's structured in other countries and other post-conflict scenarios. We look at um, case reviews where we assist our colleagues if they have questions or 
or they're seeking assistance in specific cases. Uh, we do training capacity building, uh, you know, again, going down and meeting our colleagues and talking to them about certain areas of law or certain areas of international practice where we may have had experience in the past, whether it be in, in the Balkans or Cambodia mm. or, North, you know, in other, other parts of the world in the Middle East. So we're giving that perspective. But obviously every conflict is different also yeah. as well. And the peculiarities and, and um, situations on the ground are, are unique in every scenario. So you're giving your perspective, but these are always open to, to change. And, and, you know, the, the field is developing. Um, mm. The field is developing very strongly. Um, and things are changing, so it's it's ever ever changing, ever expanding, ever growing, ever amending. Yeah, and just a question that's just dawned on me there as well. With your previous um, experience working, you know, um, on, on on different conflicts, conflicts, every everyone is different. Is this the coverage, the widespread coverage of this particular conflict in Ukraine? Does that offer anything in terms of supporting your work, or is it easier to maybe document? I'm not sure. If yeah, well, I think that's an in, you know that's an interesting question because it's it brings to to mind one of the things that I think uh, separates this conflict probably from every other conflict we've seen to date in the history of mankind. In that this is, in my humble opinion, this is the most reported and most uh, the conflict with the most amount of data in inverted commas circulating. So we all now walk around with little mini computers in our hands sure, yeah. and therefore with cameras and videos. So there's an enormous amounts of, of data being collected. Um, and you have things like uh, the eyewitness app that, you know, friends and former colleagues of mine are working on with the International Bar Association that's collecting enormous amounts of data that they're that they're they're downloading and storing. There's awful, an awful lot of work, you know, we were just talking before we started uh, the podcast about open source intelligence. Yeah. And obviously this is an enormous area. Um, and as you know, um, Bellingcat and Global Legal Action Network and other actors in this sphere ha have been looking at this and, and, and coming up with um, pieces of work on this that they're assisting our Ukrainian colleagues on as well. And then, you know, our Ukrainian mm -hmm. colleagues are very able and capable people and they know this. And it's just, I think, I think one of the biggest uh, challenges with that is there's so much data that yeah. it's the kind of opposite effect of previous conflicts where, you know, I can speak from experience to a degree in that in both Kosovo and Bosnia, we had snippets of videos. We had snippets of uh, intercepts, radio intercepts, snippets of walkie-talkie yeah. intercepts. And we were utilizing those in trial, um, mm. both in Bosnia and Kosovo, where I was working, but also at, at, um, at the international tribunals in The Hague. Now it's it's almost the complete reverse. You have so much information that trying to work your way through it is going to be really interesting. And this is one of the things where I think, you know, this is, I'm not an expert in this field, far from it, um, but I do have colleagues who are, and they're doing a lot of work in this area. Um, but, you know, AI potentially yeah, in, in the future is going, to be, you, yeah. is going to be one of the areas, and, I, you know, that, there's going to be challenges with AI, Definitely. as we all know, too. <laughs> but this is one of the areas where hopefully that can be of assistance. So taking a quick break here to say that I hope you're enjoying this episode of Activist Lawyer. Again, we'd be grateful if you could like, share and review the podcast. And please check out our website at www.activistlawyer.com where you will find some Activist Lawyer branded merchandise and some blog articles. Please tune in on Apple, Spotify or the platform of your choice for more great episodes coming soon. Like the other area that I'm doing a bit of work on um, with uh, with various actors, uh, particularly my colleagues from as part of the there's, an, or, there's a, an umbrella organisation called the Atrocity Crimes Advisory Group, which involves the UK, US, and EU. And I do a lot of work with our colleagues from obviously our most first and foremost our Ukrainian colleagues in the lead, but also then with Georgetown University who are working under the American umbrella and Pravo Justice who are working under the EU umbrella. 
um, and and our global rights compliance, who are working under kind of the UK and the EU umbrella um, on um, on environmental war crimes. So the destruction of the environment, which is obviously a massive issue, and you know, a country like Ukraine, which is it's it's history going back millennia, literally mm. back to the time of the ancient Greeks, is on being an amazing um, uh, bank of. Uh, excellent and very fertile land yeah. and you know the Ukrainian flag is, is a symbol of that in That's many right, ways yeah. and uh, you know the when you drive through Ukraine's amazing landscapes and just vast vast fields of crops and obviously this is being destroyed by the war you've mined mm. mining massive mining going massive mining in the not digging out the ground mining as in placement of of explosive devices mines into the land and to demine that area is going to take so much time cost so much money okay. you have you know destruction massive destruction of waterways you saw with the the the, the explosion of the Kharkovka dam um you'll the, the the challenges we now face and fear about what may be going on in Zaporizhia the nuclear power plant yeah. um the massive destruction of uh, millions of hectares of land of forestry and and cropland and that's you know that's not just the destruction of the Ukrainian people's uh, daily resource and wealth for now it's also for the future yeah, of course. and so the damage to the environment and this isn't just you know, like I'm not going to lie, I'm a big believer in the importance of, the, of of dealing with the climate emergency we face. But it's not even just about that. It comes down to really hard scale pounds, shillings and pence. Sure. And this is how does the country recover when it is its whole economic base, its land and therefore its whole yeah. economic base is destroyed. That's really difficult for the country um, now and in the future. Gosh, something that we don't always really look into. And I mean, mm. we're, we're, you know, so used to the reporting being solely around the actual military kind of tactics mm. and the strategies that are being used. But that's a really interesting piece then to explore. Yeah. Um, just going back a little bit in terms of outcome. And I know that, you know, it, it's likely that most cases, you know, are most I suppose people involved, I know there already have been convictions as well, haven't there, um, will take place in Ukraine. But just from your perspective and your experience, how do cases get to the ICC? And also, how do you plan for that to happen in terms of building a case? I mean, you said there as well, there's so much data and there's so much to go through. I can only imagine it's important to, to get things, you know, as accurate as possible. Um, to, to, is, is that difficult to envisage that happening or how does that, is that managed, I suppose? Well... You know, you're going to want to kill me, you're going to want to throttle me yet, but, you know, the, our Ukrainian colleagues will decide how this moves forward, but they're working very closely with the ICC, and, you know, this is yeah. it's this is in the public's uh, arena, mm -hmm. and those interactions, so I wouldn't want to speak for either of them in that regard. Sure. Um, but building cases is really, really important, of course, and that's why we're, we're out there to hopefully assist and uh, assist our colleagues, our Ukrainian colleagues, in any way that they see fit and any way that we can be um, useful but, you know, I think that's, you know, I can say from a personal perspective why I went to Ukraine, why I gave up the job I really loved with Irish Rule of Law mm. International was because I had w dealt with so many uh, conflicts from the past and this was an ongoing conflict and I was like, well, maybe I can contribute even a, a millimeter to improving the things that we had problems with in the past, whether yeah. it be in Bosnia or Kosovo or Cambodia or Iraq. Um, so... 
that's why I did it, to be honest with you. Amazing. Um, yeah. So, not, not amazing at well, all. Well, no, but the, to have that kind of insight as well, yeah. to bring, I'm sure your colleagues have similar, you know, yeah. kind of, or bring different expertise, yes, yes. but albeit based on, you know, their previous roles yes. as well. Are there many Irish people there? Or there is. There's, uh, there's eight of us at the right. moment in the EU, uh, in the EU advisory mission, uh, including the deputy head of mission, the head of operations, the head of the mm-hmm. international crimes component, so my boss, um, and uh, there's th- that's in um, in UAM. There's also several. I've met several um, Irish people, uh, both from the Republic and from the North, in, mm. uh, in working for the UN uh, mechanisms over there, and also for some of the big NGOs uh, yeah. working over there. So, I've, and then there's some Irish people who've been living there a long time. So it's kind of a mixed bag of. of so interesting. Yeah. yeah, I wasn't there for St Patrick's Day. I was actually over. Were you in, not? I was in Cambridge doing this masters that I'm doing as well. So, oh, yeah, but we'll get but to uh, that. but uh, there was a great. Great festivities. Really? Yeah, 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 right. yeah, yeah. So so I know this. Gosh, it's just hard to imagine. I'm just so interested in here. Even, so just your daily routine. I mean, what's it like to actually, you know, work? You're all based in an office there and then yep. you all obviously interact with your other kind of counterparts in yep. different parts of Ukraine. But are you primarily based within an office kind of? Yes, yeah. in Kiev, yeah, yeah. Uh, we've an, like it's a normal office yeah. like any other office like you know <laughs> trust me it's a very normal existence a lot of the time there yeah. then the air raid siren goes off and we all go down to the basement is that right okay. um, but but it's you know it's very normal yeah. it's very uh, it's busy it's active there's mm-hmm. also a lot of you know like any big office there's lots of bureaucracy and yeah, stuff to deal with too um, mm-hmm. so but you know your daily life is, is yeah. honestly very normal the, 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 the things that that make it different on a daily basis in Kiev are the air raid sirens going off and um, not so much recently, but before we had a lot of power failures. Um, then um, the issue of uh, this, the, the curfew, as you mentioned, and then getting in and out of the country takes a long time because there's no mm-hmm. flights. You have to get the train in and out, et cetera, et cetera. And then the very security settings. So that's, but li- life goes on. Humans are adaptable, you know. And, yeah, uh, certainly. So I'd say, yeah, I mean, nonetheless, very difficult kind of circumstances to work in. But, um, yeah, and how long do you think you'll be there or is it a... Well, I'll be there for... It depends on... It depends on a whole host of variables. If the the Irish government, because that's who's, you know, one of my two bosses, one of them is the Irish government because I'm seconded Mm -hmm. by the Irish government and the EU is the other side. So if the EU and the Irish government want to keep me on, then let's see. But I'll be there until next... uh, I'll be there for another year anyway. We'll see after that. Brilliant. Now, you're never just focused on one thing. (laughs) Much to my... Really, you're not. Much to to my (laughs) loss, many of my friends and family would say, yes. Yeah, so what else is going on? I know you mentioned your master's there. Have you completed your... Are you still... That's your second master's, That's I think. What's, yeah, yeah. What is. are you studying now? I'm doing sustainability leadership in, uh-huh. in at the Cambridge Institute of Sustainability Leadership in in Cambridge. Um, so I'm a year into that. I have a year to go. Uh, so that's it's mostly online, but every six months we go there for a week. So I was most recently there in, yeah. in March, very good, and yeah. I have to go there again in December. So it's very interesting because it's a multidisciplinary degree. I have colleagues who are from from banking, from mm. investments, from uh, big corporate law firms, from NGO worlds, from big companies, um, a whole host of different actors. So it's very interesting. Um, it, I won't lie, it's challenging at times. It really drags you out. Like I spent several weeks, several months there recently looking at change management theory, mm-hmm. and which I won't lie to you was like double Dutch <laughs> to me at the start. <laughs> I used to read academic articles and go, wow, I've just read 20 pages and I'm not yeah. sure. I, and it was all in English, I can confirm, but I'm not sure. But uh, uh, that's the whole point of it—to yeah. challenge yourself, to make exactly. your exactly. Uh, you certainly challenge yourself. Yeah. yeah. So really so that's So that's I'm starting my dissertation hmm. now. So that's the next battle. Fab. Um So yeah, I'm just waiting for confirmation of the that my chosen topic is okay mm-hmm. and uh, that uh, that my ch- uh, that my dissertation supervisor is happy to take me on. 
and uh, we go from there so Oh my goodness, you're just so much. I mean, so you're back to Kiev then after this visit, and that's well. I'm actually going. To, I'm actually going to Iraq on Monday uh, to okay. do. I'm doing. I had the good fortune to be asked by uh, the United Nations Office of Drugs and Crime (UNODC) um, to would I be available to assist them with some training capacity building with Iraqi judges, prosecutors, and investigators on organ trafficking, which mm-hmm. is unfortunately a. a a scourge worldwide. Mm-hmm. I did some work on this on the famous or infamous Medicus cases in, in Kosovo when I was in Kosovo. So I um, asked my boss and my boss's boss and could I go to 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 uh, Iraq and do some work helping uh, the UN, hopefully helping our Iraqi colleagues. Um, so off I go to to Iraq in a few oh, days' time, um, and they were like, "Yeah, you can go," but. Yeah, and I was like, I'm using my own leave and I'm not yeah. getting paid. So that's that's the two provisos that mm-hmm. I was like, yep, I'm using my own leave and I'm not getting paid. So they were like, off you go. So Great experience. Yeah, very uh, interesting topic. Yeah. Unfortunately, very, it's a... It's a, a difficult topic and a difficult sure one is. to investigate mm-hmm. and prosecute. Absolutely. And then are you still, we spoke a little bit the last time about your involvement with the Global Legal Action Network, GLAN, mm. a fantastic mm. organisation. Are yeah. you still... Um, so, I'm, uh, so I'm on the Legal Action Committee there, but mm-hmm. my, my assistance there is very, uh, I wouldn't say, I would say minimal actually is mm-hmm. the correct word, because they do amazing work. But, uh, you know, occasionally I guess asked to to give a piece of information or do I know such and such a person and as I mentioned they're doing they do amazing work on OSINT um, uh, so that's obviously a huge area of interest for the, for our Ukrainian colleagues and, and partners so mm-hmm. so yeah so that they're doing amazing work they have a really interesting case coming up in the, in the European Court of Human Rights um, on, on climate uh, focused on a number of Portuguese children which is going to be really fascinating I think it's actually going to have a lot of potential crossover into into the world of environmental war crimes, to be frank, because it's going to potentially, let's see what the, ju- the judges say at the European Court of Human Rights, but it could, on things like the right to a healthy environment, which is a really interesting right, yeah, area, this could mm-hmm. this could move Usually move impactful. the dial mm. to a degree. And obviously we're seeing, you know, we're seeing daily the effects of the climate emergency, like around the world. It's, uh, you know, the Sahel is on fire uh, across a swathe of, of Africa from, from the Western Sahara and Senegal the whole way over to, through Mauritania, Niger, Burkina yeah. Faso, the whole way over to the Horn of Africa. And and we're seeing, you know, floods and massive fires in yeah. Canada and in, um, in, in China, et cetera, in Latin America. So we've, you know, enormous problems huge. facing us. Yeah. Huge problems. And I don't, and I think one of the things, one of the things I love about coming home to Ireland is how nice and calm and, and, uh, easy things are but I also think we're very cocooned from, we are, yeah. from the reality that is crossing our planet and you know I sometimes have arguments and debates with many of my close friends uh, about these topics and and uh, I'm pretty grim to be honest with a lot of this yeah. stuff and they're like you're pretty grim about this and I'm like yeah because I think we're in a deep deep hole I think we've got yeah. a lot of and you know, I sit in my lectures in Cambridge online or read the materials and I go I literally sit there and go we are so bleeped yeah, yeah. Bleep, 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 bleep. Uh-huh. And uh, we are so cocooned here. But um, you do see, I think, environmental law and, you know, any kind of associated kind of disciplines around that seems to be growing in terms yes. of becoming a, a kind of developing area of law that people yes. seem to be interested in becoming more involved in. And, you know, 10 years ago, you wouldn't have really... Is that correct? Is that, is that Well, in my, in, in my humble opinion, yeah. it is. Like, one of the things, if you look from the corporate perspective, and this is actually what I'm going to be doing my dissertation on, hopefully, is on the ESG agenda, you know, environmental social governance, which is a okay. massive area in, in the corporate sphere mm. and big corporate law firms the big consultancy companies big government around the world are looking at this you know it's quite controversial in the US for instance where certain um, the GOP the, the Republicans um, uh, want to push back against what they yeah. say is this woke ESG agenda but the ESG agenda in many ways is about 
best utilization of resources about getting the best results for investors. So it's not mm. something that people should be afraid of. Now, whether the methodologies of our economic system are fit for purpose with climate change, I'm not sold on at all, to be frank. But I do think we need to upscale and learn about it a lot, and that's yeah. that's hopefully what I'll be doing my dissertation is on on that on the Irish legal professions how we can how we need to um, potentially reform and or grow and or improve our legal education system for solicitors, barristers, judges, um, students uh, uh, on this side of things because it's you know it's it's a really important area, but it's also going to be really really challenging. Mm-hmm. So let's Absolutely. see. Absolutely. And the last time, I mean, we went through, I mean, you did quite an unconventional legal career in terms of how you got into practice. So we'll, we'll not go through it, but it was very, very, um, a lot of our listeners find it very, very interesting. Um, you know, a diverse um, experience that you have. But now, given, you know, your position at the moment, what advice, again, I'll ask you, do you have for listeners or people who are interested in maybe not going down the practitioner route, maybe at the start they do that and then they'll maybe diverge into, you know, going to more of an international kind of setting for their experience or their work? You know, what advice, what nuggets do you have for our listeners there? There's no better person. Oh, there's, <laughs> there's, many, there's certainly many better per- people <laughs> of that, I'm certain. Um, I think I would say always my first starting point would be um, get your legal qualification, your professional qualification as quickly as you can because the older you get, the more difficult mm-hmm. it gets. Mm-hmm. And then I would say ideally work in a domestic system. Um, it doesn't particularly matter which one, but get it, exper- mm-hmm. it could be your home one, but it could be another one, but get some experience in a domestic jurisdiction for a few years. I'm not saying this is the only way. This yeah. is just, I think, the 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 easiest stroke most uh, helpful way mm-hmm. and then i would say go international and if you want to go international be prepared to work long hours and for very little if any money at the start yeah. and that's a difficulty with the system sure unfortunately it, is, yeah. it makes it difficult for people who don't have the financial backing or whatever so you know i was lucky in that regard but it's post- part of the reason to do the domestic work is to build up a little bit of save scrimp and save and build up a bit of a bank of money to hopefully allow you to do that and then it's about um, I think it's really important to to meet people, to put yourself out there, to contact people, to engage with people, and you'd be surprised. Like I've been very lucky over the years that I've contacted people out of the blue. I was out with one of them last night in Belfast, um, and they will help you out. Yeah. And people will put themselves out for you. And then, of course, the thing I would always say is people then contact me, and I say, look, I'm happy to help you out, but mm-hmm. you need to pass on the love uh, because there'll be people coming to you in 10, 15, 20 years' time, so you need to do the same. That's all. Mm-hmm. I don't want anything else from you. So a lot of people will help you out. If, like Some really senior, amazing people have helped me out over the years. I'm very very lucky to have had many great mm-hmm. bosses and senior people and mentors if you will and then the last thing I would say is languages are really helpful uh, okay yeah and I, it's not even about it, it can be Aramaic or Yiddish mm-hmm. or Scots Gaelic or Manx or you know um, so it doesn't have to be Navajo. modern European languages well, no no of course yeah. ideally it is you know ideally it would be like Arabic or uh, Mandarin or French or Spanish mm-hmm. or Hindi one of the big languages but I think the more languages you speak, the easier it is to learn another language. I also That's think That's very true. Yeah. I also think that, you know, that, that famous phrase on TG Car and the Irish language TV station of Sul Ella, which is mm. another I, um, it's another way of looking at the world. And I think language does that. It helps you look at the world in a different way. And I've seen this so many times looking at documents, looking at translations, and you know, um, I'm far from a genius, sadly, but I do think it helps you look at stuff and gives you a perspective on things and just the way people phrase things and the way people deal with other people. Language is such an important thing. And that's where I would say if you have the opportunity, if you speak a decent level of any language, work on it, improve mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. If you have an interest in language, work on it, 
get you know do it the work is worthwhile and I can say honestly when you go to a country and you make a little bit of effort and I'm doing very badly in the Ukraine at the moment I'm blaming my masters are but you I, but are I, you but, trying to learn well you know yeah. I, I can get by in, in Bosnia and Serbian creation like so I use that a lot as my crutch because it's kind of as one of my colleagues calls it the pan-slavic and yeah, yeah. um, words a lot of the numbers and mm. days of the week and stuff like that are quite similar so I can use that but but I need to do some work on my Ukrainian now and I've promised myself uh, after I this uh, break that I'll go harder at it and mm. I'll try and mould it into my master's work because I was kind of using that as a way out of it but sure. I do think that it's also get about gaining people people's respect like mm-hmm. if you're going to go in someone's country you should have the good grace and manners to learn something of their culture and to try and learn something of their language you know it's very important and people will react well to you if you mm. do that because they'll say okay this person has some respect for where we're coming from in our mm-hmm. experiences mm. like and you know in Ukraine you see that in it's amazing works of literature. Um, like I'm reading Sergei Plochy's book at the moment, The Gates of Europe, which is exceptional. And I've read a lot of Schneider's work before. And then there's, you know, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of famous uh, Ukrainian authors of the past. So, you know, mm. Gogol, for instance, you know, so the, these kind of people have a lot to say and you have a lot to learn from yeah. them. So I think that's very important. Brilliant. Excellent. Sound and practical advice. Well, hopefully. As always. Sure, it's full of holes too. (laughs) No, it has been just an absolute pleasure. I keep in touch with you uh, quite frequently, thankfully, that you've you've let me in on some of your work and what you've been doing. And it's just fascinating um, to hear how you're getting on. And it's just even more um, insightful to have you here and share your work and your experience again with us. I'm really, really appreciative of it for dropping in today. No, no, the pleasure's all mine. Unfortunately, my knowledge and experience and and, uh, is not as amazing as it might seem. It's pretty pretty normal all the time. Honestly, trust me, it is. Well, look, it's amazing to me and very, very fascinating. But uh, we hope to have you back again to let us know how you're getting on. Um, I'll be following your work and keep in touch with me and let me know how you're getting on. It's just um, great to hear from you again. And thank you again for popping in to our lovely studio here. Thanks everyone for joining me today. If you like the show, please remember to share and leave a review if you have a moment. And you can also check out our website, www.activistlawyer.com, where you will see some blog articles written by our guests and contributors, as well as some fabulous Activist Lawyer merchandise. This podcast was recorded in Granite Podcast Studio. Interested in starting up your own podcast, but don't know how? Granite Podcast Studio can help. Record your podcast in our state-of-the-art studio, which is based in the heart of Newry City. Our studio has cutting-edge and user-friendly technology and can seat up to four people. We also provide an editing service for our team using your guidance and editing notes to provide you with a flawless finished product, leaving your listeners wanting more. For more information on how you can get started, visit www.granitepodcaststudio.com.